Okay. Hey guys, uh, my name is Josh, if we haven't met, and I'm really glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you haven't opened to John 16, please do that. So we're hanging out. Um, if you've been with us, if you've been coming this year, uh, we've been looking at the words that Jesus speaks uh, to his closest followers uh, right before he dies. And uh, we all know that you don't really do small talk, right? Um, right before you die, you don't, you don't small talk with people. You talk about the most important things uh, in the world. And Jesus is giving some massive just revelation, information, training, and instruction to his disciples that is, is so important for us because it applies to us as well. And if you've been following along, you've noticed that Jesus has talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. And here, uh, that's definitely the case here in John 16. And here in these words that Jesus says to his followers, he's basically saying this. He's basically saying, guys, the Spirit being inside you is better than me being beside you. The Spirit inside you is better than me being beside you. Now, um, I completely stole those words uh, from a subtitle uh, from a book that J.D. Greer wrote called Jesus Continued, which is a book about the importance and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're wanting to go further into that topic, I, I, I would recommend that book to you. Um, but, but nonetheless, I think it's very true, and, he, and he's getting that title, and the title of this message, we're getting this from verse 7, because um, uh, Jesus says in verse 7, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, or we're reading a different translation, maybe your translation says the counselor, basically the spirit, he will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. I kind of thought about asking you out of the gate, but I thought you might be too jarred by it. Um, just the question, I mean, are you glad that Jesus is not here this morning? That's kind of what he's saying in verse 7. It's like, you should be glad that, that I won't be here. And I've never really said those words before. Like, aren't you glad Jesus isn't here? And, and um, I, please don't quote me or rip that quote out and journal it and show it to your friends or something. I'll... I'll get weird emails and stuff that won't be fun to deal with. But uh, nonetheless, Jesus is saying that it's an advantage. It's an advantage that I leave, okay? Jesus says that you should be glad that I won't be here. Why? So that I can send the Spirit to you. The Spirit inside of us must be better than Jesus beside us if it's an advantage to us that Jesus leaves. Um, I think many of us, though, we struggle uh, with believing that. Uh, we think uh, believing in general, like this Christian stuff, it, believing it's hard. Um, if I, you might have said this, like if I could have just been there, you know, if I could have seen Jesus with my eyes, if I could have heard his teaching or witnessed his miracles, then I would believe, then I would have, uh, you know, no doubts. But all you have to do is, is read about the people who followed Jesus and saw those things that he did and heard his teaching, you know, or even some of his closest disciples like Thomas and others like struggled with, with doubt. And I think when we look at the people who were surrounded um, who surrounded Jesus and saw and heard these things, we would see that that is not necessarily the, our best solution. It's just being with Jesus in the present. Uh, something, I think, very similar to this whole idea that I'm talking about is found in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 8. And Peter, in verse 8 of chapter 1 of his letter that he writes, he says that you and I, we can love Jesus, that we can believe in Jesus and rejoice in Jesus, even though we do not see Jesus. Peter wants you to understand 
that not having physically walked with and talked with and seen Jesus with your own eyes doesn't put you at a disadvantage to him or to all the others who are physically alive with Jesus when he was on the earth. That's what he says to you. I mean, as great and as glorious, and we would all admit to this, I think, as great and awesome it would have been to to see Jesus, the fact that we didn't doesn't mean that our faith and our love and our joy in Jesus are any less genuine or less fervent or less passionate, they're less pleasing to God in any way. I mean, of course, the day is coming, and I think many of us in this room, hopefully, are longing for that day when we will see him face to face, but we must see, like Peter says in his letter, your historical distance from Jesus in the first century is is no obstacle to you loving Jesus and trusting Him and enjoying Him in this life. Why? Why could that be true? Because we have the Spirit. The Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you, and, and I think we begin to see why. And we see this in verses 7 through 15 this morning. We see how the Spirit works, what the Spirit does, and how we get him. Well, how the Spirit works, what he does, and how we get him. First, I want us to look at how the Spirit works. If you would read with me again in verse 7. Jesus says, after he's trying to comfort his disciples, he says, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says, the helper will not come to you if I don't go away, not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So I will send him to you. So how does the Spirit work? How does he, he do it? Well, we see here, you can't gloss over that. It's actually a very important verse. It's, it's the, really the hinge verse of this whole passage. The Spirit works in and through God's people. You see that? Spirit works through the community of Jesus, through the followers of Jesus, because Jesus says, I will send the Spirit to you. I will send the Spirit to you. That's what Jesus says, I'm sending the Spirit to you. He doesn't say, I'm going to send the Spirit to the air or some just abstract sense of the earth, or I'm going to send him to a location or the mountains. It's through Christians. He's going to send the Spirit to live in and dwell in his followers. I think you see this again when you, when you read the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You read about the Spirit being sent into the world. The Spirit is, again, he's not sent to the mountains. He's not sent vaguely into the streets. He is sent to his followers, to the followers of Jesus, to the church. And, and I think this thought alone uh, brings with it some pretty, pretty big uh, ramifications for how we understand how God works in the world. I mean, just for example, maybe you're like me, I don't know, do you ever pray for God uh, to work in somebody or convict somebody or, um, you know, you're like, hey, you know, God, do this or um, do this in someone's life or in this part of the world, and, but you're asking Him to do that just apart from you. You know, I think when you read the New Testament, you see over and over again that the Spirit doesn't work apart from his, God's people. He, he doesn't work without God's people. He works through God's people. That's how he, he works. So when we are praying or we're desiring for God to work in people or places, he's wanting to do that through you. That's how God works. 
And um, I'm, I'm convinc- convicted of that oftentimes in my life where I'm praying that God would do something and I'm just disconnecting my life from that reality as if, you know, somehow I'm praying for my neighborhood and God's just going to miraculously do things apart from me. No, God's placed me in my neighborhood to reach out to the people in my sphere of influence. That's how God works. It's through His, His people. It's through me. I mean, maybe you're praying for a certain people group or region of the world, you know, I mean, as we're talking about global missions this morning, you know, and we're wanting this region of the world to be better exposed to the good news and the hope about Jesus. Well, how is that going to happen? What's well, through God's people going out? And that could very well be you. It could very well be you. I mean, do you see, we can't skip over verse 7 because verse 7 shows you that the Spirit comes to Jesus' followers. We are God's plan A to reach the world. God's plan isn't to work apart from his people, but in and through his people. In other words, uh, we are God's, if you will, his, his show and tell to the world. We're his show and tell. Um, I volunteer um, in uh, my, my daughter Eden's first grade class uh, every other Wednesday for art, okay? Um, I just, I love being in there with her, right? I'm not good at art or anything, so I'm probably damaging many children for years to come uh, when it comes to their art skills. But nevertheless, I, my favorite part of attending and being a part of the classroom is right before art, um, I get to hear these first graders do show and tell. They call it sharing or something. But when I was a kid, it was called show and tell. And if you're anything, I, mean, I hope you had show and tell. If not, you missed out, okay? And uh, show and tell was awesome. And we all get the concept of show and tell, right? You bring something, and you show people what it is, and you also describe, you know, what that is. And so I thought this morning, like, I would love to actually do show and tell with you, because I think this actually would fit a little bit. But um, I was given this gift uh, from uh, the very own, Stephen Brucker, a really close friend of mine, a great ministry partner. Uh, he left in August, and as he left, he gave me this gift, okay? This gift is uh, his cherished, it was his cherished possession. Um, I had a hard time receiving this gift. Um, it's, a, it's the book Pilgrim's Progress, but it's, a couple, it's almost 200 years old. It's a really old copy of Pilgrim's Progress, okay? And um, so if I brought this this morning, and I didn't tell you what it was, and I, and I just showed it to you, and I said, look what I have, you guys, show and tell, and I just showed it to you. I mean, it's, you, it'd be hard for you to see unless you're in the first few rows. There's a picture, I think, that's an inside view of what's going on in this case right here, okay? Um, but if I just showed it to you and I said, look what this is, you would look at it and you go, okay, that's cool. It's old. You know, it's a book, right? Like, you would get some general idea of what it is, right, if I just showed you what it is, okay? But if I didn't tell you what it is, it's just not really helpful, right? You don't really get the, the gist of it. You don't get the significance of it, Right? In another way, if I didn't bring this with me this morning, I was like, hey, I got this thing, it's a couple of hundred years old, you know, it's, it's the book Pilgrim's Progress, just a classic, and I described it for you, you'd be like, oh, that's really cool. But hopefully, internally, to some degree, you'd be like, can I see it? Like, is this real? Are you lying to me? Like, I don't even know if this is true. Can books even be that old? Like, what is a book? Some of you might be saying that, okay? Um, do I really have this, right? Like, we get the concept that showing and telling together is really significant. If you show it without telling it, right, you don't get the significance of it. Right? You don't even know maybe what you're looking at. If you tell it without showing it, uh, we might intellectually see it, but we don't really know if it's real, if it's true. So just showing and not telling and just telling and not showing aren't very helpful. We really need both. In the same way, God has sent the Spirit into the lives of His people 
in the lives of Jesus' community so that we would go into the world with the presence of God, not just showing the world what God is like and not telling what he is like, like showing you the book and, and, not, and just saying, figure it out, right? And not just telling the world what he's like and not showing them, like describing this book for you but not showing you. It's both. It's hand in hand. God's people go out into the world. That's how the Spirit works in the world, through the walking and talking and living and, and breathing people of Jesus, the church. We are God's show and tell. And this is how the Spirit of God works in the world. Well, what does the Spirit do? What does the Spirit do through God's people? Well, we begin to see this in verses 8 through 15. And I, I think that for many modern-day followers of Jesus, um, I think we often answer this question, what does the Spirit do, with a vague sense of spirituality, okay? Uh, we, we tend to dumb down the Spirit's role into simply a thing that brings about this, like, moving or transcendent experience in our lives. You know, like, I don't know, it was just powerful, like, oh, there was the Spirit, you know? And when we look here in verses 8 through 15, though, we see way more specific things that the Spirit does, and they're not just equated with bringing us a, a warm, transcendent feeling, okay? Uh, we see that the Spirit convicts the world, and that He guides us, and that He glorifies Jesus. Those are three things you see. First, He convicts the world. Look with me in verse 8 through 11. He says, and when He comes, referring to the Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So, what this is saying, guys, is that without the Holy Spirit, guys, there is no cure, there's no remedy for the spiritual blindness and cluelessness of the human race. Like, we need the Spirit to bring about uh, this understanding of our sin and and. and, and our righteousness and how it's not true righteousness and our uh, standing before God in, in the sense of being judged. This um, phrase, it, my translation uh, I just read says convict. Um, actually, uh, the NIV I think is better. It says he will prove the world to be in the wrong. That's what this is saying. The verb means to expose, to bring into the light, to draw out. And there does come a sense of conviction, I think, with that. Well, what is the world in the wrong about? What does the Spirit expose? Well, again, it's our sin, our righteousness, and our judgment. You see our sin in, in verse 9. And our sin is wrapped up not just in this idea, Jesus says, in doing something that's wrong, but it's wrapped up in this idea of belief. See, he says it, the sin is, is, is present because they did not believe in Jesus, so I think a lot of times we think of belief as just this intellectual assent, you know, like I believe in Jesus that maybe he even is who he says he is, right? But James even famously said, even demons believe Jesus is who he says he was. So it's not just an intellectual understanding of something, but belief at its core has this idea of heartfelt worship and adoration behind it. And Jesus is saying at the heart of sin is, is a, a misorientation of what we worship. They didn't believe in me. They didn't worship me. They didn't treasure me. But then he talks about this idea of concerning righteousness. And he equates this or ties this idea of being guilty or convicted of our righteousness to his own resurrection and ascension. Well, why does he do that? Well, because when Jesus was resurrected and ascended, it proved to the world that Jesus really was the true righteous one, that he was who he says he was, that he was the perfect human being, that the way he lived is like the standard. 
And so all through the ages, people have thought they lived righteously, that they were good before God. They're like, I'm okay, I'm fine. And, and we, we can do that, we can believe that, but not when you compare yourself to the righteousness of Jesus. When you compare yourself to the righteousness of Jesus, you begin to see how unrighteous you really are. And so when I look at, at the perfection of Jesus, I go, man, my righteousness is like nothing. And then he says concerning judgment, and he ties this idea of judgment in verse 11 to the fact that um, the Bible would say Satan, or he says here, the ruler of this world is judged. That the ruler of this world, because he stands at the cross and sees Jesus die on that cross and defeat sin and death in his resurrection, the ruler of this world stands condemned. And we looked at last week, if you're here, that Jesus has his kingdom, and then Satan, or the ruler of this world, has his kingdom, and you're a part of one or the other. And so it says the Spirit comes and convicts us. He, he exposes us in the sense of our judgment because Satan, or the ruler of this world, stands defeated and condemned. And so if you're not a part of Jesus, then you're a part of the world, and you too would stand condemned, that you would be judged. So again, these are, these are the things that we are told that the Spirit exposes or convicts the world about us, and let's just be real, we don't like these things. I mean, I'm sitting here saying sin and righteousness and judgment, and you're like, oh, geez, you know, you're not like, yes, give me more, most of you. Um, but John Stott says about this verse, he says that the Spirit comes and he takes these things, sin, righteousness, judgment, he takes these things that, that many times we often dislike or recoil from, which we shouldn't. And he turns them, John Stott says, into a solemn reality for us. They go from things that were like, ah, oh, no thanks, into things that were like, whoa, I got to deal with this. Where we have to deal with these things. That's what the Spirit does. He makes us deal with them. See, uh, so much social science, social science, I'm not a social scientist, I can't even say it, oh my gosh. So much social science, my goodness, that's hard has a ton of research, okay, uh, that shows that human beings have this infinite capacity to rationalize the worst things, like the worst deeds. We have this infinite capacity to, to look at things that we do and justify them and say, well, I'm still a pretty good person. I think on like one of the most extreme ends of the spectrum is, is you can look at people in history who are like hitmen, who like literally kill people for a living, and they're like, well, I'm not that bad, like I'm, I love my wife, you know, or I love my mom, I like built her this house with the money I got for killing people or something. Or you might even watch films or movies where you empathize with a character, you see terrible things that they do, but you're like, well, he, look at how he loves her, right? Like, oh, he's great. Like, he's not that bad. You know, we like rationalize people's behavior. We justify people in different, in different ways. And social scientists prove, and their research shows us that we, you and I even, we rationalize, we can rationalize anything. Um, we might say things like, I'm not gossiping, I'm just like warning you about that person. I'm not arrogant, I'm not prideful, I'm just, I'm just a confident person. Or I'm not a coward, I'm just being careful, you know. Uh, I'm not abrasive, I'm just straightforward. Right? Um, I'm not anxious, I'm just realistic, like I know what could happen, right. Or I don't, I don't drink too much, I'm just, you know, when I'm stressed out, it just helps a little bit, or... Um, you know, I'm the life of the party, you know. The last one there, the world actually has a word for that. It's called denial. And the Bible says that we are all in denial about all the other ones too, and countless others. 
We are always in denial about how deep our sin is or how flawed we are. And I can tell you things will happen in your life that will, or at least should, reveal that to you. Things will happen that will show you who you are, that will reveal at times like how wrapped up you are in yourself. You see this a lot through parenting and different things, right? Or things will happen and you'll, you'll realize you'll, how capable you are of being dishonest. Like, wow, I can't believe I just lied about that. And you'll still rationalize it, though. You'll still deny it. You'll still explain it away, and you'll say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm just not that bad of a person. Or the Spirit can get to you. And when the Spirit gets to you, it would cause you to get to a place where you go, man, I need God. Like, I need a Savior. You see, one of, our, one of our biggest problems, I think, in our times, and, and even in the Pacific Northwest, is that we don't think we need Jesus. People often ask me as a pastor in a place like this or as a church planter or something like that, they'll say, you know, what do you, what do you think it was going to take to see a movement of God like in a place like Corvallis or Pacific Northwest? And I often point to something like this. People, we all need to see how much we need Jesus. We don't think we need him, and we do. And so whether you're here and you're not a Christian or if you even claim to be a Christian and you're like, I'm not that bad, we often think we're fine, we think we're pretty good until we see, guys, the depth of our need, we cannot have our need met. And I'm convinced that this is one of the biggest issues of our day, that we won't follow Jesus, we won't come to him in faith to save us if we don't see how much we need him. The the issue, though, isn't that we don't actually need him, it's that we are blind in seeing how much we need him. It'd be like um, having a really severe illness and just kind of like loading that off in the back of your mind, being like, I think I'm fine. But like you have a severe illness and you're just kind of walking around with this severe illness, like you can fake it for a while, but eventually that's going to come to a head, right? Something's going to happen. And the Holy Spirit is like that really good friend that comes to you and says, hey, you're sick. Uh, You need to go see Jesus the doctor. That's what the Spirit does. So like Stott says, the Spirit turns these things listed here that we recoil from into this solemn reality for us, but, but, but also I want you guys to see that, that to be convicted here or to be proved in the wrong, it's not a bad thing. It's not a shame thing. So I think most of us, when, we, when someone proves that we're in the wrong, they're doing that to be like, see, I'm right. It's to shame you. That's not why God ever does it. God doesn't sit there just to shame you. When God, through the Spirit, points out how you're in the wrong, it's always a redemptive thing. See, God's goal in convicting you or showing you how you're in the wrong is always in order that you might actually come to Jesus to be redeemed, to be restored. It's not to crush you, it's to restore you. And and so God, God does this. He does this through the lives of his people, people who have the Spirit, who are living faithful lives that show and tell the goodness of God. Or in other words, God will bring godly people, Jesus' people, into your life that will reveal your sin, that will reveal uh, your lack of belief, that will show you that you thought you were righteous and, and maybe you're not. Um, I think of it this way all the time. Um, when me and my family moved into the house we now live in, uh, we bought this house. We got a really good deal on it because it's right next to the train tracks. If you've ever been to our house, you've maybe seen this. And um, when we first moved in, we were like, all right, we can deal with this. And every time that train went by, we were really aware of it, okay? Like, shake the house. You'd wake up in the middle of the night, and you're like, oh, my gosh, our kids are waking up, you know? At first, you're like, will this ever change, you know? And over time, you kind of get so used to the train. 
Even recently, I remember telling my wife, like a month ago, I was like, has the railroad fallen on hard times? I mean, I don't even notice the train coming by anymore. Like, what's happening with the railroad? You know? And, um, and she was like, oh, I think it still comes by or whatnot. But I've, I've learned something. I never notice the train anymore until somebody comes to the house that's never been to my house. Even last night, uh, we had people over, some of the interns and others, and Mitchell and Jessica were in the back with me, and the train comes by, and they were like, what is that, you know? And the house is shaking, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we have a train, right, that comes by. <laughs> and, uh, but I, it has to be someone comes into my life to reveal that to me. I feel like God sends godly people into our lives, his followers, and it's kind of like the train. They're, they're, they're revealing to you what is true. And so a godly person would come into your life, and they're so humble, it reveals your pride. They're so generous, it reveals your greed. They're so loving that it reveals your cold heart. They're so truthful that it, that it reveals your dishonesty. They're so sacrificial that it reveals your self-centeredness. Or they're so purposeful that it reveals your lack of purpose. Or they're so full of life that it reveals your emptiness. Or they're so patient that it reveals your abuse of power. See, the Spirit convicts and exposes us to our guilt and our need for Jesus. And he does this through the words and actions of his people. Secondly, though, he guides us into all truth. See this in verses 12 through 13. It says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So we're promised here that it's through the spirit of God that we are guided into truth. And how does he do that? He does it through speaking. He says it over and over again. He speaks. He will speak. He will speak. Actually, 59 places in the New Testament, uh, the Spirit of God shows up. 59 places. 36 of those instances, he is speaking. Spirit speaks. This is what he does. He speaks. So I just want to ask you, I mean, when was the last time that you heard from God? You heard from the Spirit. I mean, do you even sense that you're following Him? That, that He's guiding you? That's what He says here. He guides you. He's, he's in front of you, right? You're following Him. Are you even wanting to be guided? Are you even hoping to find truth? Or is following Jesus to you just, just like, I got to learn a bunch of stuff and do a bunch of stuff? But no, here, the Spirit guides you into truth. I think of the story of Samuel and Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 3, if you've read that story. Samuel's a young boy in the temple with Eli, and at night, he goes to sleep, and he could hear who he thinks is Eli calling him, you know, Samuel, Samuel. And he goes, runs to Eli, and Eli's like, go back to bed, you know, I'm not talking to you. And after a few nights of doing this, Eli catches on. He's like, I think Yahweh, I think God's talking to you. So next time that you hear your name, say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. And so God, the next night, says, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Samuel heard his name and he responded, your servant hears. I don't share this story to you to say that if you have the Spirit, then, then you're going to hear God audibly call out your name in the middle of the night. That'd be really cool, but I'm not promising you that at all. But I share this story because I think that's the right posture that we should have as we're following Jesus. 
We should have a posture that's constantly saying, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Your servant is listening. So how, how do you know truth? Like, how does the Spirit lead you into truth? How, how has God revealed himself to you? How does he speak? Well, it's through, it's through the very word of God that you're holding in your hand. It's through the very word of God that you're holding in your hand, the Scriptures, I mean, Paul said all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's that image of, of from the mouth. It's called the Word of God. Like God speaks to us through His Word, and one of the primary things that the Spirit does is reveal and help us to see and hear and understand the truth that is revealed in God's Word. He guides you into truth. And very similarly, this is the same idea that the psalmist says, your Word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. Guys, this is, this is so important because if you want to know what it means for the Spirit to guide you into truth, you have to go to Scripture and ask Him to reveal truth to you. Just, I'll just be honest with you. When I sit down and read my Bible, I always begin with Spirit speak, like teach me, guide me. He's the one who helps us to understand. Right, this is so important because if you want to know what it means for the Spirit to guide you in truth, you have to go to Scripture, ask Him to reveal truth to you. Because This is awesome. This is great because you aren't asked then to wander through this life aimlessly just trying to figure it out. God has revealed Himself to you in this Word. Um, uh, I, I love this movie as a kid, um, The Rock. Okay, it's on the screen. Starring world-class Nick Cage, right? I'm actually a huge Nick Cage fan that came out last night as we were hanging out. I love this movie. You could take it down now. It's kind of weird. He's pointing a gun at you, okay? Um, but this is the movie, okay? I love this movie. And forever, because of this movie, I was like, I want to go to Alcatraz, okay? I want to go to Alcatraz. Um, and me and my wife, we finally went to Alcatraz about a decade ago. And we showed up. You get off the boat, and it's awesome. And they're like, hey, you can just walk around and, and explore, or you can get these headsets. And uh, these headsets will, like, guide you through and teach you all this kind of different stuff. And I was like, man, I want the headsets, you know? So I got the headsets and we went through and I learned all these things about Alcatraz in that tour that I would never have known. Yes, I could have walked around aimlessly the Alcatraz Island and been like, this looks like a jail cell and this is water over here, you know? And I could have been very general, like I think people were imprisoned here and stuff, you know? But if I didn't have the headset, I would know nothing about Alcatraz, right? In the same way, like you, yeah, Alcatraz is kind of like the Bible. You could open the Bible, you could read it, you could try to navigate around, you're like, I think this is this, and whatever. But the Spirit is our guide. He's like the headphones on Alcatraz. He's revealing what is actually true to you. You see a perfect example of this in Acts 8 with uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip, it says, is filled with the Spirit and is sent to this Ethiopian eunuch. And he says, uh, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? That's what he says. See, God puts the Spirit in his people, and he uses his people to guide others into truth. But the Spirit is the one that even Philip needed to guide him to even know it was the truth. See, we need the Spirit to guide us. We are so dependent on the Spirit for, for grabbing hold of truth and for wisdom and insight and direction. He's the one leading us. I'm just asking you this morning, are you even being led? Are you seeking to be led? The third thing you see, though, is that he glorifies Jesus. Look in verses 14 and 15. It says, he will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify me, Jesus. For he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it 
to you. Uh, these are very, guys, these verses I've just read, they're very important verses here for how we should discern the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. He guides you into truth, all truth. He won't contradict the Word of God. He'll guide you further into it. And here he glorifies Jesus. We see here that the Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. That's what he does. And so God will never lead you into something that doesn't glorify Jesus. You can't use the Spirit uh, in an abusive way like that. The Spirit always glorifies Jesus. What does this mean, that he will glorify Jesus? Well, we've talked about this word glory. It's come up quite a bit through um, this section of Scripture. And the idea of glory is, uh, glory has an idea that something is valuable. It displays the value or the weightiness of something or of someone. And so what this means is that the Spirit glorifies Jesus and that he is constantly putting on display how great and how worthy Jesus is. His job, you guys, is to reveal the loveliness and the preciousness of Jesus to you. It's what he does. He never robs Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. And so very practically, I mean, I think you should be very leery of Christian communities or Christians who always talk about the Spirit, but they never mention Jesus. You should be very leery of people uh, that do that, and Christian communities that do that, or people even, uh, going back to the, the previous thing that the Spirit does, people who say, well, the Spirit told me to do this, and it completely contradicts the Word of God. This is not what the Spirit does. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. He puts Jesus on display. It's His role. It's what He does. Um, I really wanted to bring for you this morning the Mona Lisa, Okay but I couldn't afford it. And, um, but I did bring you a picture because I was just wanted to make sure there wasn't somebody who didn't know what the Mona Lisa was. It's like the most famous painting in the history of the world, okay? Um, and uh, let's just say, let's just imagine, okay, I'm sorry I didn't bring it, but let's just imagine that I had um, the Mona Lisa up here. It was behind a cloth, you know, like a drape thing. And I said, hey guys, I brought you something. And I whipped off the cloth and you're like, oh my gosh, that's the Mona Lisa. Like, first of all, you'd have a lot of questions, like, well, we're, we're like paying you too much, or, you know, different <laughs> weird questions like that, right? Um, you're like, how, you know, how'd you get that? Let's just put all those questions aside right now, all right? You would look at that, and you go, oh my gosh, that is the Mona Lisa, the most famous painting on the history of the face of the earth. What I bet would, hap- I, I bet would not happen is this. If I pull that drape off, you're not going to go, whoa, look at the lighting in this room, <laughs> right? Like, that's really good lighting right? It's, I don't know, it's not great, but it's fine, right? But you're not going to sit there and adore the lights, are you? You're going to focus on the Mona Lisa, right? You're like, oh my gosh, that is the Mona Lisa, right? I'm going to go look at it after the service. You know, you're going to look at the Mona Lisa. The light shines on the treasure, right? It's the light that's displaying the art. You don't say beautiful light. You say, wow, what a painting, right? This is what the Spirit does. He, he opens your eyes, He opens your ears. He warms your heart. He causes you to behold the glory of Jesus so that our hearts would treasure him. He's constantly pointing. He's constantly shining. He's showing you Jesus. That's his role. Therefore, when we are living lives, guys, that follow Jesus, we're walking in the Spirit. That means that our lives, if you're walking in the Spirit, that means your life will point to Jesus. That, That your life will display his worth. That your life will display his value and his glory. We don't use the Spirit to promote ourselves. The Spirit works through us to promote Jesus. And 18 through 15 shows us the Spirit, guys, he exposes our sin. He guides us into truth. He glorifies Jesus. But we finally see, verse 7, how we get him. 
I want to just go back to verse 7. It's, it's the important verse. Jesus again says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. How do we, how do we get the Spirit? Why does Jesus say the Spirit can't come unless he goes away? I mean, can we not have Jesus and the Spirit in the same place? That's kind of confusing. Well, what Jesus means when he says in verse 7 that in order for the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to come, he, Jesus, first has to leave. And it's important that you understand because in verse uh, 7, these words, go away, they do not simply refer to the physical departure of Jesus when he ascends after his resurrection into heaven. He's talking specifically about his impending death. His going away is primarily a reference to his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his resurrection, all of which is then consummated by his ascension into heaven. So in other words, the reason why the Holy Spirit can't come until Jesus goes away isn't because there's some logical objection or some physical obstacle for why they can't both be in the same place on earth at the same time. No, no the reason is that according to God's promise, that the, the blessing of the Spirit's indwelling presence in our lives is dependent on Christ going and making full and final atonement for your sin. That sin that the Spirit's brought to your attention. See, it's only after and because of our guilt that has been taken away and the judgment that we deserve has been endured by Jesus, the promise of the Spirit's coming to reside in us and empower us can actually occur. Therefore, it is to our advantage that Jesus goes away because in doing so, what's he going to do? He's going to suffer for your sin. He's going to satisfy the wrath of God against you. And in so doing, he is going to make it possible for you to be reconciled to God. And all of this, guys, is necessary before he can send the Spirit to take up residence in our hearts because we've seen by the power of the Spirit how filthy our lives are, how much we need Jesus. I mean, the Spirit, guys, just think about it. The Spirit is so holy. I mean, it, it, no one could ever stand in the presence of God. If they did, they would, they would die. And, and, or, and so we see how holy the Spirit is and how much the Spirit cannot reside in a sinful place. And so we need Jesus to go and to do the finished work for us. I put it to you this way. If you had some really, uh, really filthy mug, right, like a really gross mug, has like dirt on it and I don't know, boogers or something, just like gross stuff, you know, it's like really gross and you're looking at it, okay? And you just, you know, chemexed like the best cup, single origin coffee, like the best cup of coffee in the world, okay? And you're like, oh, I haven't even had my cup of coffee today. This is going to be amazing. And you look down and you see that mug. What are you going to do? Are you going to pour that coffee, that, that pure blessed cup of coffee, are you going to pour that into that filthy mug? Well, of course not, right? What do you do? You're going to probably drink it out of the Chemex or something, right? That's what you're going to do. You would never put that into that filthy mug, right? I mean, we're talking about like, if we're talking about a scale here, that's like on one end of the spectrum. The Holy Spirit cannot dwell within humanity. Like, we are, we are so sinful. But we need Jesus to come and to clean us up in order for the Spirit to reside in us. See, without Jesus' sacrifice and victory for you in the cross and without his empty grave, we cannot have the Spirit of God residing in us. We are the mug, right? We're the filthy mug. And so, Jesus, you guys, this is the good news. Jesus did go away. 
Jesus was made dirty so that you could be made clean. He was the truth that came into the world and the world mistook him as a lie so that you could be guided into truth. He was the innocent yet declared guilty one that all who are guilty could actually come to him and could be declared innocent. He was righteous, perfectly righteous, yet he took your unrighteousness and gave you his righteousness. He was judged so that you could be spared judgment. He set aside his glory so, so that you could truly come to life in the spirit and live for his glory. You, you can have the spirit inside of you because Jesus had the Father leave his side as he hung on the cross so that you can forever know and experience not just God with you, but God in you. You see, Jesus, with, without Jesus going away, we can't have the spirit. And therefore, if Jesus hadn't gone away and you still wanted to try to follow him this morning, all you would have is empty religion. You wouldn't have vibrant new life. I mean, even... Bono said, religion with, is what happens when the Spirit has left the building. Praise God that the Spirit doesn't have to leave the building. Because Jesus went away and laid down his life so that you and I could be suitably clean, that we could be a dwelling place for the very presence of God. So you guys, the Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Why? Because the Spirit brings us to Jesus. Spirit guides us in his ways. And he puts him on display in our lives. You guys, your historical distance from Jesus in the first century is no obstacle to your loving him and trusting him and enjoying him. Because the Spirit is to us what Jesus had been to his disciples. Spirit is to us what Jesus had been to his disciples. And he convicts us, he guides us, and he makes Jesus beautiful. That's what he does. Let's all, let's all pray.